Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Welcome to Down with D&D. My name is Sean Merwin, and I have with me again for the episode I am calling Alpha 3, because it is the third official episode, with Alpha Stream Teos Avedia. Hey, Alpha Stream. How's it going? Hey, Sean. How is the Mad Wizard? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. In the midst of a lot of writing, which is awesome and also horrifying. You, you, know, you well, know how it yeah, is. Um, I, I do know how it is, and I'm glad you're doing the good work. Yeah, I, I am certainly trying. But while I was doing some writing uh, this weekend, you were doing some DMing and a little bit of playing. You want to tell us how Gen Con Online went? It was great. Uh, you know, the nitty gritty details is I ran three tables in Spanish, uh, as we talked about last week. And we're going to have to adjust things to get more people there and make it accessible for those groups. Yeah. Uh, I played in three Moonshade Isles D&D games. Those were awesome. Uh, including a special, which was amazing to see people online use a combination of Twitch streams and multiple Discord channels and everything to pull together different tables and make it feel like different tables are playing together. Yeah, how'd that, uh, was, how'd that work out? Yeah, it was, it was pretty good. Yeah, and, and there are some groups that I guess have been doing this off and on for a while. So there, was, there were, you know, folks like Ted Atkinson and uh, uh, Krishna was there and, you know, a number of other heroes who have experience with this. And my DM was Laura Thompson. Okay. She's awesome. So, you know, it was, uh, it was great. We had a really good time. Uh, I played a Cypher System game from their Stars Are on Fire series, uh, yeah. kind of space exploration, derelict spacecraft type thing. That was a lot of fun. How'd that run with, uh, did you run it like D20? Or I'm sorry, Roll20? Uh, or did you do Theater of the Mind? Or Yeah, Cypher, the Cypher game was Theater of the Mind using Zoom. Okay. Uh, I played one game on uh fantasy grounds that was my first time playing there and then played everything else on roll 20. okay cool i was just wondering how other systems uh if if they're on a a virtual tabletop how how they work um but it sounds like it was just sort of zoom for for the cypher system game yeah though i think all kinds of tools are used like i was talking to somebody in that cypher game and we were comparing how our gen cons were and they were on the board game track and i sort of thought to myself mentally like wait the board game board game (laughs) track really really happens and they're like yeah we actually we use roll 20 a lot uh and then there's tabletop simulator and all these other tools so you can do virtual stuff and you know there are all these ways to do it right that's awesome but it warmed my heart it it really just very quickly say that that uh it was really very good to see how gen con online worked and brought people together and my tables were full of people who were new to gen con who said i could never come here before Mm-hmm. or who said this is my first time playing adventures league uh, most of my players for cypher were new to cypher mm. so you know like it was and, and i was a player but you know i just sound like i was a game but uh, yeah. yeah it was really cool it made me feel like i came out of this feeling really positive about the hobby and that online conventions could work yeah and i did a great job and and that does warm my heart too that the, the the fact that there were new players you know, new to new to the game system, new to the convention scene, uh, Gen Con, new to Adventures League. That's what you hope for when you have have this sort of twist in in the hierarchy of how things work. 
um, you want to take the the good that can be had out of it uh, with all the bad that is happening and and make it uh, make it something at least something positive. And it sounds like it was a positive experience for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, it really was. It was great. I know that charity angle. Right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I know uh bald man games reported that they ran over 500 events in four different languages with thousands of players and they raised over or almost $20,000 for charity. So uh, as Dave, Chris said, it was super groovy. So, and, and that's, I mean, that's great, right? Not yeah, only really that happening, but $20,000 for charity is nothing to sneeze at. And yeah. for me, it'll be interesting to see, as more of these conventions run an online presence, we have PAX online coming up soon, uh, how they are going to, how it's going to change their, their way of running things when and if we get back to normal. So when Gen Con is back in Indy, you know, with their 70, 80, 90, 100,000 people at the, at the downtown area, are they still going to offer these online games? And if I'm so, I'm hearing, I'm hearing yes. Yeah, that's what, that's what I hear from you know their event organizer and people like yeah. that. They're saying, "Yeah, this is this is we need to expand this way." Yeah, and then the next step is combining the two, being able to play online with people who are physically at the show, and, and if you can do that, then you've got the best of all worlds. Uh, incredible. Yeah. So the next thing I wanted to talk about, uh, since we we do news here, but we also look at you know things that we see online. DM David, a favorite of, of yours, Teos, and mine, uh, had an amazing article, a blog post, about three actions that D&D players want that defy the game's design choices. And, you know, this, this I, I always read DM David stuff, and I just, like, yeah, this is exactly right. Not, I, I've thought this, but I've never taken the time to sit down and, and like, put it together in a coherent way and he just does it so smoothly and it's so insightful. Uh, what, what did you think of the article? Yeah. I, I mean, I, everything, yes to, to every, yes to everything you said. Uh, and the three things he lists are, are three that come up very often. Uh, especially for me, the, the, the third one you have on your list here, delaying. Uh, the, which is from previous editions, the idea that you, you don't take an action now. You say, I want to do something later. I'll jump in later and I'll just sink down to be later in the initiative. Right. That, that I see that all the time. Right. It, it's something that I think is natural, or I don't even know if it's natural for somebody who's not versed in the rules to want to do, but it's definitely so, something that someone who's played a lot of different editions want to do because there can be such a tactical advantage to delaying and it's been in the rules before. Uh, personally, I'm glad that it's gone. And, and I think yeah. you are too, uh, yeah. because it caused such problems in rules with things like so, an effect will last until the start or the end of your turn. Well, I delay, then you have to keep track of when things begin and end and also where someone's initiative count is and sometimes some rules you would move in the initiative count some rules you would remain in the initiative count so you know it was it was it was a complicated yeah it was a complicated mess for for rules and so i am glad it's gone but as as uh as david points out you know it's something that players want to do and you just have to say yep this is you could ready there there's a rule for readying so 
uh, you might want to take that, uh, that tact. The, the other two things are things that both experienced players and new players like to try to do. And I think that's, that's more important though. These two to keep track of or be aware of, because if it's something that a brand new player wants to do, then that might be something worth looking at in terms of a ne- the next iteration of the rules to find a way to allow, even though there isn't uh it's not modeled in the rules and it's not modeled in the rules for good reason. Uh, right. the, the one he talked about is called shot, which is, you know, I want to shoot the ogre in the eye or the Cyclops in the eye. I want to shoot the wand out of the mage's hand. Um, something that people always try say to say to, that they want to do. Uh, the problem with it as always is, it becomes a shortcut to winning, right? It becomes an instant win button. And as many of those rules that can be removed from the game as possible is good. It take, it cuts down on the narrative power of the game, but it shores up a loophole in the mechanics of the game that are easily exploitable. I like what you said there about the um, kind of what you, the, the intent of, of what, players are going after. I think there's two levels of intent. One is the person who's really like, yeah, I want to win, press the win button yeah. uh, by blinding them. Uh, but there's, there's also that, that new player angle or that creativity angle that you want to enable. And I, for me, this one and the other one that's in the article, I think are about improv skills, right? So mm-hmm. like if someone says to you in, in genuine faith, right, you know, I want to try to blind the Cyclops. So they just realize, wow, they've got one eye. If I can do that, it's a big win. Yeah. And that's where I would say, well, okay, you know, I'm going to improvise what you need to do for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe some, some kind of check. And the result will be that maybe they're blinded for a round and you do no damage. Right. Right. There's blood kind of, you didn't quite hit them in the eye, but there's, you cut them right above it. Blood's coming down. They can't see for a round. And that's a really neat, rewarding effect. And it could be hard and all that sort of thing. Right. And it's not overpowered. Right. Because there's already sort of like this aid or help mechanic in the game. Um, so you could just use that to aid multiple people for a round if you make this easy, hard, or difficult check. You know, yeah, that's that's a that's a good way, uh, Teos. I think of of saying, you know, narratively the player wants to do something, translate it mechanically into the game in a way that's not an instant win button, but that rewards that player for being creative and narrative. And something I always look at when these situations come up is, you know, how can I live with the ruling and making now if they tried to make it again? And usually I just find a, re- a way that mentally yeah. that, I could, that I could say it just doesn't work the next time, right? Or maybe like if you did it a second round, the, the giant's just shaking its head from side to side and, and then it doesn't right. work. Right. He, he's guarding against it now. Yeah. Yep. And, and the third uh, action that DM David talks about is readying outside of combat. The, you know, the ready action is a, in, an in-combat action, as Jeremy Crawford uh, so eloquently puts it. So when people are outside of combat, but they want to ready, how do you handle it? And in this case, I think DM David's, uh, what he tells players is spot on, right? You are always ready outside of combat, that you're an adventurer. Uh, so unless you're surprised, you are ready, but so is your opponent. So therefore everyone's readied 
So therefore yeah. no one's readied. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's the way it should be. Uh, what I like to do narratively though, is when I'm writing an adventure or if I'm DMing something, reward players who do describe what their character is doing. You know, you walk into a cavern and you see the ceiling is covered with webs. What are players instantly going to do? I look up at the ceiling. If there are spiders up there, give them advantage on their perception checks. Give them advantage on their initiative role uh, when combat starts. Or twist that. Oh, I look up. I look up. Okay, everyone's looking up. The enemies tunnel up from below. So unless you specifically say, I'm looking down, you have disadvantage on your perception check or your initiative role. So you can, you can play that many different ways, but it can be fun for players to narratively describe what their character's doing and then have a, a small but significant mechanical effect based on that. Yeah. Even just a narrative effect, it doesn't necessarily have to change the combat, but you know, if they describe sort of how they're getting ready outside the door and then bursting in, you can just describe the other monsters as being you know, taken by surprise, stopped in the middle of whatever they're doing, but they're still rolling initiative normally. But you give them that that feeling of satisfaction of you interrupted what they were doing. Yep. You know, now they're reacting to you. Yeah. Yep. The the narrative begets narrative mm -hmm. uh, in that sense. And if the characters are taking the time to do that, it's probably because they enjoy that. So they're getting joy back for the joy that they're giving. That's awesome. All right. Uh, next bit of news, Exploring Eberron from Eberron creator Keith Baker has been released on the DMs Guild. It is a 248-page book written by Keith himself, stuffed with lore giving depth to topics such as the Dwarves of Muir Holds and the Thirteen Plains. You can get it for $30 for the PDF or $60 for the hardcover. Um, I've purchased it, but I haven't read it yet. But if you do want a detailed uh, review or in this case, preview of it. Uh, Mike Shea, Sly Flourish, did an hour-long episode on his Lazy DM prep that previews the product. So have you had a chance to, to look at it? or uh, Due to Gen Con, I have not, though I am very lucky to live in Portland. And mm -hmm. prior to all this business of COVID, uh, I did, in fact, get to hang out with Keith and talking about this book when he was sort of mid-work on it. And, and we... Yeah, and he was sharing the details of what was in it. And then I saw that cover art, which is awesome looking. Yeah. Um, so I will definitely be picking up the, the hardcover for this. Uh, it, it's, it is really neat. But what's in here, the maps, the art, I mean, it, it looks, it basically Keith has made an official D&D &D book yep. about, you know, just one tiny shade less than super official, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and that's, that's what's great about the DMs Guild for people like Keith and Ed Greenwood uh, you know, of Forgotten Realms fame, because now they have a place to sell these goods. Uh, for fourth edition, for third edition, for any previous edition, you know, Keith, who is a great game designer, uh, great creative mind, would not have been able to do any of this unless it had a wizard's official stamp. Now he has a place to to sell this uh, stuff that he loves so much and he's had such an integral part in for, for the fans and, yeah. and actually make money off of it. And in the past, you would see somebody like Keith or Ed, you know, someone would say like, I really want you to make a book on blah. And they'd say, I would love to. Mm -hmm. We'll see if Wizards ever does that. 
right. and decides to bring me on. And and now, you know, this can happen as long as it's one of the open properties yeah. that's on the guild. They can, you know, creator can actually do that. It's yeah. Great. So, and just a little inside baseball, doing a little math in my head, I would strongly bet that Keith is going to be able to make more money doing it this way than he would have if he had written for a an official Wizards of the Coast book. Yeah, when you're paid by the word, you know, even right. if he's getting a word rate, uh, let's imagine he was getting 20 cents a word. I'm right. sure that being a mithril seller, uh, you know, today, right. this has already beaten that uh, yep. by a fair bit and will continue yep. to beat it soundly over time. So it is, yep. it is nice to see creators have a way to get real yeah, you know, real money. Yeah, and not only is Keith, you know, profiting off of this, but so are the other contributors and and layout and art and you know, all of that. Yeah. So uh, it's it's a it's a lot more work for a creator. Obviously, you can't just drop the words off and and have other people do it. But you know, if you want Keith's vision, without going through the you know the Wizards of the Coast process, here it is. Um, everything you that you want for your hard-earned Eberron dollars or gold pieces. Yeah. Highly Timber. recommended. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to talk about the uh, the next thing? Yeah, so Empty Black also released something on the DMs Guild again because he is so amazing, so prolific. <laughs> uh, and it's the Eye of Colthus. It is supporting the mythic Odyssey of Theros hardback that just came out from Wizards of the Coast. And this is a short adventure covering levels one to four. It deals with a temple of the god of destiny, Clothis, which is really cool. Uh, she, they, uh, is, I think it's a she. She, um, her, she sort of represents the fates element out of uh, Greek Roman mythology. Her hair is the strands of destiny and fate. Um, and so suddenly the oracle goes silent. People send messengers to get some kind of... Uh, information back and the messengers don't return so you're sent to investigate it has a heavy theme of prophecy uh, it also has a lot of aquatic creatures in it they're very richly well described encounters it's it's the usual great work from empty black so if you want that sort of deity heavy fun adventure for mythic odyssey of theros this is a great thing to pick up mm -hmm. and uh, the the layout's beautiful it's done by rich lesca flair yep. it's a, D, a dm skilled adept release Nice. And uh, one more bit of news that Teos wanted to mention. Yeah, so Dragon Plus usually gives up, gives away maps. And the latest issue, which is all about the Icewind Dale information, uh, it includes maps from the Theros book that you can download for free. And it includes two maps from the Acquisitions Incorporated book that you and I worked on. Oh, nice. Uh, and these are two that happen to be from the parts of the adventure that I wrote, Lottie's Palace, which is sort of a gambling den. Mm -hmm. and the Horn Enclave, a dwarven location. Nice. Uh, both of these were maps that when I started working on them, I thought, this is insane, this will never work. And somehow I handed in my scrawl, and Jared Blando, the cartographer who's from Portland, yeah. uh, turned them into just amazing maps, and you can get them for free. Have you, have you met him personally? We, we, you know, we've always had... Yeah, well, yes. Actually, I okay. met him at Gen Con, but before we really knew each other very well, so it's just a quick, like, hey, you did a piece of art that was in a Dragon, uh, a Dungeon Magazine article, and so we sat high very briefly, and then later realized we were both in Portland, have wanted to get together and never have, and right. now COVID. All right, yeah, so now it will be delayed yet again. Well, all this talk of the uh, 
the uh, Odysseys of Theros hardback. At some point in the near future, a week, two weeks, somewhere down the line, uh, we will be taking an in-depth look at that book, uh, to, you know, talking about what's in it and how you can use it for your game. But this week, our main topic uh, is going to be part one of probably a two-part series on exploration. We're calling it, because we are witty chaps, exploring exploration. <laughs> and you know, since the brains behind D&D mentioned the three pillars of, of combat, or I'm sorry, three pillars of D&D, combat, exploration, and interaction role-playing, uh, I've had a new appreciation for adventure and encounter design, as well as overall game design. Uh, those three pillars are a great tool for analyzing how and why people play D&D, and then a great structure for synthesizing encounters and adventures and games. So the top topic came up recently, and it shows the confusion that exploration as a pillar has uh, versus the, the more condensed mechanic for overland travel. If you say exploration to some people, their mind just says, oh, that part of the game is where you go across the map. And that's all they think of exploration as when really it's, it's a much deeper topic. So that's what we're going to focus on in this part today is sort of what really is exploration? Why is it so hard to deal with? And what are some tips for at least getting started using exploration in your games? And then we will get into more detail in, in part two uh, next week. Sounds great. Yeah, and I, I thought of this, this topic has been in my mind because of the, uh, a couple of different things. One is a number of, of, of people on Twitter discussing exploration as a pillar, and yet almost everything they were talking about was that overland travel angle. Mm -hmm. uh, and a Reddit post came up that walked through the rules for overland exploration. And again, it was sort of treated by many as if this was synonymous with all of the pillar. Mm -hmm. And they walked through the rules. It was a very interesting response. Some people said, yeah, the, see, the pillar works fine and overland exploration works fine. And other people said, that's a, a very dense system. I can't run this every single game. Like, this isn't going to work. And then other people said, I would like a more complicated system for this. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and I think it just comes back to to, to how the pillar is presented mm -hmm. in the books, which is actually quite confusing, right? I mean, the three pillars are combat, role-playing, exploration. Mm -hmm. And if we look at combat and role-playing, it's like you, you kind of, you look at those and you go, yeah, yep, yeah, okay. Yeah, there's role-playing scenes, combat scenes, got it. And then as soon as you get to exploration, you're like, yeah, that sounds right. And you're like, well, think about what else could be a pillar. Maybe puzzles, well, that's exploration. Uh, maybe it's something like investigating stuff. Well, that's also exploration. It's like everything got thrown into the exploration pillar. Right. Under right. one name that sounds yeah. a lot like crossing the land. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and it's, it's funny because, you know, we always talk about, or at least I always talk about, and probably will every week for the next lifetime, this, this conflict between D and D as a mechanical game and, and as a narrative tool. And so you know, combat fits perfectly into the mechanical game part, right? Three yeah. quarters of the rules are focused on combat. 
that's well documented. It's very mechanical. People who like the chess uh, match of D and D, moving things around the board in a, a way that's optimal, they can get behind that. Right. The narrative part, the role playing. Oh, we're gonna laugh in character, tell jokes. Uh, interact with each other and with NPCs and great stories and drama and conflict and comedy come out of that. There's the narrative side. And for me, exploration doesn't fit neatly into either one of those categories. And as you just said, it sort of gets, everything gets thrown into that that's not combat or role-playing interaction. So it becomes a big mess for DMs and players especially when there, as you just said, are so many different wants and desires for the pillar out there. You know, some people want another 300 page book just with exploration rules that they can dive into. Some people want it to just be narrative and just sort of open up the world and show what's in it without really any mechanics needing to be involved. But there's so much there that you can't do it correctly using just either method you, you have to use both or all i think a lot of the folks who are talking about this subject who are looking for help are, are kind of saying like i get those other two pillars and i feel comfortable with bringing them into my game but i don't know how to make this exploration pillar resonate i don't know how to you know write it in a published adventure i don't know how to bring it to my game table mm -hmm. in, in a way that you know i don't understand the toolkit Right. Whereas for combat, you understand the toolkit. There's there are all kinds of rules on how to put together a combat encounter. You have a whole monster manual. You know, you have traps or things like that. But you don't know how to. How mm -hmm. where are the, the, the where's the instruction booklet, the recipe for exploration? And, and and it's because there really isn't one. Right. 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 And one thing that you did for the Acquisitions Incorporated book was to create these positions. Right, these eight positions, which in a way try to bridge that gap between yeah. mechanics, uh, combat, and exploration by giving the, the characters with these positions the tools and the skills necessary to make a game of it while still having a narrative uh, underpinning within the system. Yeah, and, and that's something that, that, you know, it was really that Jerry Holkins, who, who ran the Acquisitions Incorporated live streams for the C team, came up with that as a sort of special thing that each character brought to the table to, to tie together that narrative theme. Uh, it was fun, I was looking at this uh, article on comicbook.com where Christian Hoffer talked about how they sort of solved exploration. And then this is really, really was sort of map exploration was to take the idea of acquisitions incorporated having positions and created positions around exploration mm -hmm. to kind of tweak and customize that idea of positions that was awesome. Yeah. Um, so that then they, you know, one person was like the navigator position right. and another person was, and I forget what all the rules that they came up with, uh, mm -hmm. but it was that really neat idea of like, okay, you can, you can do this and, and, and customize this in, in really interesting ways. Uh, let's see, so here they are, navigator, scout, lookout, forager, tracker, cartographer, and lore gatherer. So yeah. little subtle twists to the positions that we created in the book right. so that it would fit this role, which is neat. Yeah, that, that is neat. And the positions for the AI uh, rules covered more than just exploration, right? It did cover yeah. sort of this, the, the more of a role-playing aspect of 
kept being in communication with HQ and being in communication with, with other franchises and uh, keeping a karmic, keeping karmic track yes. of your, of your franchises ups and downs. So yeah. uh, it, it's, it's a little more expansive than just exploration, but it's a great way to, ease people into the concept of not just role playing, not just combat with some easy, simple to follow instructions and rules that empower the, the players to take on some of the burden of, of that. And maybe let's you know, take a step back, Sean, if you don't mind, and say that the reason why these pillars exist, mm-hmm. uh, it comes off of, you know, a history across the editions where almost all of the editions, at least from, from 3E on for sure, uh, have addressed the idea of player types. Mm-hmm. And that different players, and something that D&D started exploring in second edition, different players want different things out of the game, but they don't want just one thing, but they sort of have a different pie chart, if you were to imagine it, of what components they want in the game. Yeah. And then you take everybody at the table and you sort of overlap it and you get a sort of very interesting mosaic of, you know, of mm-hmm. what people, uh, really want and what you can do to please them. And so this, this study of, of the different types of play of different types of players can then lead you to, to think of how, what are the different pieces you can offer? And I think that's how the pillars ended up being designed for fifth edition mm-hmm. because the pillars are new to those to, to fifth edition. Right. And so you, you really benefit uh, as a DM, as a creator, as a designer, when you think of the pillars that way and the exploration pillar uh, the combat pillar, the role-playing pillar, they don't have to be separate. It's not mm-hmm. like you have a encounter that's X and then the next one's Y. Right. You did a really good job in your D&D Beyond article series where you talked about how to write adventures about how to, you can combine these pillars and bring it together. And I think that's one of the key skills that we can, you know, as we delve into this topic, uh, as we explore exploration, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. we can really help people know how to, how to combine those. Yep. So I want you to talk for a little bit about how the actual rules, right? The, the monster or monster manual, the MG player's handbook, how do they cover exploration? Because it's such an, an amalgam of, of various aspects of the game. Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't think it's particularly great given that this is a bedrock, you know, this, the three pillars concept is like a bedrock of fifth edition it doesn't really spend the time on exploration that it does on the other topics. Um, and chapter eight of the Dungeon Master's Guide covers exploration, but it's kind of all over the place. It, it has map travel pace, which then links to the player's handbook that gives you the ideas for uh, travel pace and forced march. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's sort of this weird thing of like, if you're in a dungeon, you're moving at this speed per like size of space on the map. It's it's a, right. it's a very strange take on it. And yeah. none of it is, is, you know, here's what exploration is. Or <laughs> if you're in a flying mount or how far can you see outdoors? What's it like to track? Yeah. Uh, chapter five of the DMG, mapping a wilderness, moving on a map, foraging. Uh, the player's handbook has, you know, these rules for, for traversing maps and getting lost and things like that. And, and I don't, you know, to me, the best thing is, is there's this piece in, in chapter one, actually, of the Dungeon Master's Guide that says that much of a campaign involves the adventurers traveling from place to place, exploring the environment and learning about the fantasy world. This exploration can take place in any environment, including a vast wilderness, a labyrinthine dungeon, the shadowy passages of the underdark, the crowded streets of a city, and the undulating waters of the sea. Determining a way around an obstacle 
finding a hidden object, investigating a strange feature of a dungeon, deciphering clues, solving puzzles, and bypassing or disabling traps can all be part of exploration. And it goes on, but to me, that's this is the one piece that, and this is actually, it's like a sidebar. It's a little, you know, yeah. uh, it's a sidebar that's embedded in the text. But this is this needed its own. This needed to be somewhere else and and highlight and then more underneath on how right. to execute on this. Right. The, the, this is the outline for a chapter on exploration, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so for for sure it needed to be uh, to be elaborated on a bit more. Yeah, because that's what it really says. You know, exploration is not moving across one type of map like outdoors. Mm -hmm. It's any movement. And it's also a trap. It's also a puzzle. It's right. also finding clues, interacting with a strange feature in the dungeon. Right. And that's that's the recipe, right? But it's sort of hidden in this sidebar. Yeah. So okay. So let's uh, let's break it down at the broadest level. What is the exploration pillar? Um, so I think of this as the any kind of engagement with the world. Okay. Uh, and I almost would rather it be called the engagement pillar because to me, what, when we get to player types and types of play, it's really about wanting to do a thing and either see what happens or learn based okay. on what you just did. Okay. So it's, so it's the ex experimentation pillar. Yeah. It, it, it's yeah. yeah. The, the way I like to think of it is people, as we've talked about, they, they, they hear exploration and they go right to the dictionary definition, you know, which is you know, moving through and discovering something. Mm -hmm. I, I like to think of it as any time that you're starting with your, the unknown and moving toward knowing that. That's exploration, because to me, that covers all of the things they mentioned above it, right? It's traps. You don't know what it's going to do, or you don't know whether it's there or not, then you do and you learn. Um, that covers the strange things that you find in the dungeon that you're not sure what they do. That covers going over the map, you know, all of those things. It can even be in the role playing sense, not knowing what someone knows and then learning what they know. Yeah. So you can kind of explore in a role-playing social sense yeah. uh, just as easily as you can explore in a sort of combat in a dungeon sense. Absolutely. Yeah, any kind of role-playing scene where you're trying to uncover a secret or play out a certain strategy, that yeah. also tickles that exploration part of the brain. Mm -hmm. So and I think... Yeah, yeah to work this pillar, you want things to be interesting. Mm -hmm. You want them to raise questions. Uh, so, you know, if you're going to put the exploration pillar, you know, how do I have some exploration aspects in this dungeon room? Then those things have to happen. Something must be interesting to where players go, huh. And there are these questions that you want answers to. And then that interaction, whatever it is that they're going to do with it, which can be very free form or it can be very linear, prescribed kind of thing, the interaction then should result in something that's rewarding or validating in some way. Mm -hmm. Cool. 
So, so the keys to good exploration are what Teos just said, um, you know, raising questions and then finding those answers. Um, if you think about exploration in terms of the challenges, rewards, and consequences, that's another way of, as a creator of adventures, to come at this problem. So you set up, what's the challenge? It's not a, going to be a monster that they have to kill. It's going to be something that they have to learn about, get around, navigate. What do they have to do to overcome those challenges? What are the rewards if they succeed? And what are the consequences if they fail? And you know, that's, that's the, the quick and dirty outline of, of an exploration challenge. You don't have to come up with a complete list of the ways they can solve that. You can step back and let the players decide because some may have to, you know, run through the door head first, whereas others may use magic to completely bypass the door, but that's okay. That's part of the fun of D and D is you have characters that are good at certain things, characters that are good at completely different things, but both of those skill sets can be used to solve a challenge. Yeah, and, and one of the nice things about the exploration pillar is that the challenge does not all need to be difficult for exploration as a sort of box to be checked off, right? Like uh, I remember in an adventure that I wrote for you long ago, there was a room where uh, they were seeking this body and I think the things that were on the body and it was at the far end of the room and sort of Indiana Jones style, a wall was starting to come down to close off that area. Mm -hmm. And players then and there were some things to fight some monsters to fight but it was this obvious like well if you want that you're gonna have to find a way to get there right, right. and in fourth edition there were a number of spells that mages could have wizards could have that could let them go straight to that area like arcane bridge or something like that mm -hmm. and players when i would run it they'd use one of those spells and they would feel like they broke the game right and, and I would just kind of like, yeah, that was awesome. You know, I, would, I wouldn't right. say, but in my mind, I was thinking like, you didn't break it. That was the point. Right, exactly. Like there yeah. are easy ways to get there. You also could have just ran and not fought, right? So right. there are ways and it's rewarding regardless, but the players feel awesome because they feel like they bested it, right? Right, right. And, and you can put in rewards or at least think about them or create them if players come up with something that you never even thought of. So create those rewards. And again, when I say rewards, I'm not talking about magic items or gold or treasure, but like Taylor said, a sense of accomplishment yeah. or, Oh, since you all move through the door so quickly, half the monsters are still trapped on the other side of the door, making this fight a lot easier than it would have been. Um, you know, that's a reward. Yeah. yeah and anything that's uh, tactical in a combat scene that just adds a minor benefit, right? High ground, uh, getting you know, a way to climb out of the acid that just spilled or a way to spill acid onto enemies or any sort of thing like that feels fantastic. And at, at low levels can make for really fun adventures yep. despite a very small mechanical effect. Like if you're fighting a, a bunch of goblins and you dump some acid out of a barrel onto them and deal just even two points of damage to all of them, that feels like a really cool Right. victory right right 
Right. And, and that's harder to do at higher levels because at higher levels, you're so used to having all your toys and buttons and, you know, the mage can cast the one spell and take everybody out anyway. But at lower levels, when when you do have that limited range of abilities, something, as you said, Teo, something like that uh, can feel incredible. And, and the, the other thing you can do is, you know, in terms of if you're adjudicating how much power uh, a certain encounter, especially combat encounter might have, you can assume that they are going to do that. And so when they do wipe out 30 goblins with one maneuver, they feel like we just did an incredibly powerful thing. It's still a normal combat going on after that. Uh, But they, they feel like they have done this amazing thing and they, they have, right. But you're, you're just, you're facilitating that uh, and letting their ingenuity uh, come out in, in, in a way that you kind of knew was going to happen. Right. Yeah. And, and that the obvious, I think as designers, we think that the obvious will never work or that it's, it won't be fun. And I remember with confrontation at Candlekeep when mm-hmm. you and I worked on that project, um, I did a room where I put a, I think it was a basilisk that was sleeping. Right. And above it was like a glass orb filled some the kind of weird gray thing. And it was basically gray ooze. Huh. And so, you know, I thought maybe this is just too obvious that you you know, you can shatter this and that gray weirdness is going to fall on the basilisk that's sleeping. That's everybody's going to do that. But the reality is some groups really did just stealth by yep. and others broke the glass and they felt awesome doing it. Right. And I, I really almost didn't put that encounter in. But yeah. the last one I was like, no, I, you know, let's see. I think this can work. And, and sure enough, like people really enjoyed having that as an option. And it didn't feel too obvious to them, which was surprising. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I, I can't really add much to that. That's, <laughs> that's, that's very true. Um, so, well, I mean, I'll say another. So this weekend, you know, I was running an adventure you wrote, uh, the introduction to the Icewind Dale uh, Ice Road Trackers, it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is in the second part of four, there's kind of four small adventure parts of this. And then the second one you get to, and I'm not going to spoil it, but you, you're doing a, a, you're traipsing through the forest and you encounter a number of sort of traps. And I really like the design you did. And I encourage people to look at this when this is eventually available. Um, because it, it, you paint a scene and it's exactly what we're talking about. You are painting a scene that is evocative. We're in this normal forest trail and all of a sudden there's this thing. Mm-hmm. And there's no way as players, you're not seeing this thing and going, okay, yeah, what is going on with it? But yet what I found every time I run it is people still want to mess with it. Yeah. They can't help but mess with it. And of course there's a trap involved, right? but it's compelling enough. It's engaging such that you can't ignore it. You can't walk by it. You're going to want to do something about it. Right. And, and it's not just, you know, for, for, for certain players, it's going to be, if we ignore the experience points, we won't get the experience points. So we have to trigger it for, for narrative players. It's in the, all the movies I love, they set the traps off. We talked about this last week, right? Yeah, we want yeah. to see what happens. Yeah. So let's see what happens. Yeah. And, and, you know, as, as a designer, thank you to both those kinds of players, right? Yeah. Thank you for engaging with the story. Thank you for trusting the, <laughs> the writer and the, and the DMs to, to tell a fun story 
because you're interacting with the story that they're creating. Yeah, and you're right. This really does dovetail into traps. I mean, traps are a big part of exploration or a part, you know, can be a big part of your exploration experiences uh, because they engage you that way, as we were describing last time, right? Good traps are ones where you want to uh, be a part of it and it's not just a all or nothing. And, and this is a great example of that where the, it, it is a trap or there's a trap involved, um, uh, but it engages you. You want to work with it, how you approach it matters. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, a, a payoff and the payoff doesn't just have to be positive, right? It could be right. damaged, but, right. but you get a, a reward for how you chose to interact with it. Uh-huh. Uh, and usually there's both positive, positive and negative. I mean, it's something like to me, you know, I, I always go to the well of Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, you know, if you're looking at that golden idol and you want that idol right. and you know there's some sort of trap and you can even figure out what the trap is. Right. Uh, but then you still have to engage with it in a certain way, maybe making a check to, you know, how much sand do I put in this bag? Right. And that is exactly the excitement that it, that it creates. And then all those traps you bypass now have a chance to hit you again because you got to right. run out of there. <laughs> exactly. You can't uh, stop at every single trap and disarmament. Yeah. So I think we've hit a good stopping point. Um, there are still a lot of topics that we can touch on in terms of exploration. And we will touch on those next week, including melding all of the uh, pillars together to form encounters that are bigger than the sum of their parts. Let's put it that way. Uh, As well as some overland travel uh, rules and, and, and mechanics to touch on and so on. Yeah. And we could talk about how to make overland travel fun. I I look forward to that, and I need you to teach me how to do that, Teos. <laughs> well, I'll do my best. All right. So thank you, first of all, all you listeners out there. Here's where we would normally say to our patrons, thank you for being patrons. So I will say it. Thank you for being patrons. Although this week I want to ask a question of our listeners. So we're thinking about what format best serves us and our listeners. Um, We are always going to be a podcast where you can just hear Teos and I blather on for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, So fear not. But I want to know, would there be any interest in us adding a live streaming component to the show where we might use Twitch, say, to talk directly to you and answer questions from you while we're discussing topics? If it would be of interest to you to do that, assuming we choose a time when you could drop in and interact with us, let us know. Uh, tell us on our Twitter feed at DownWithDND. You can go to the forums at misdirectedmark.com. Uh, or you can just yell out your windows or drive past our houses uh, that you would love to see us do a live show either every week or maybe just occasionally where uh, we can interact directly with, with listeners and with great D&D minds out there. So, yeah, Sean, I'd be yeah. curious whether people uh, who want this sort of interaction, would they want it to be kind of periodic? Because right now you and I, we think, you know, we do a good amount of working on what we want to talk about, thinking mm-hmm. about it, sort of planning it out. Yep. Um, so do they want us to sort of do that live? Yep. And then respond to questions sort of at the end, or do they want more interaction, you know, kind of as we go? Yeah. So, you know, if, if you're a regular listener or if this is the first time you're listening and you like what you heard, uh, let us know what you think about that. You can also talk to us on Twitter. Uh, you can talk to me at Sean.Merwin 
or you can go, like I said before, to the forums. They're at forums.misdirectedmark.com where you can uh, give us your feedback. Teos, where can people find you on the internet? I'm at AlphaStream on Twitter. I am blogging at alphastream.org, and you can also find me on the Misdirected Mark forums. Excellent. Down with D&D is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Teos, now that we have discussed all of this exploration, what do you feel like doing? I'm going to pull this lever and see how, how it affects those monsters that are over there. I bet it does some marvelous things. It might kill them. It might. Or us. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D?